session <laughs> for uh, the fall session. So I appreciate you guys coming out. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to bring these uh, sessions, and I, I hope that they've been a, a blessing to you. They've been a blessing to me. Um, they're also going to be posted on uh, Sermon Audio, uh, which is a website um, that posts sermons and teachings and other things. So if any of these sessions are, have blessed you, please let other people know about them so that they can go on there. And I can give you that information too. Uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, we'll get started. The, the, tonight's talk is, uh, is called Dragon Slaying, and it's a paradigm for, for godly masculinity. Uh, that's the that's the title. So, yeah, I was, I was thinking uh, earlier when Larry was given his message that that Thanksgiving, you know, is the is the one day per year that we come together and uh, you know we we celebrate that which we're thankful for. You know, we give thanks, and then the very next day is the day that we call Black Friday, which is the day that we trample everybody to get the stuff that we don't have. And, uh, and then that seems to carry the theme all the way until the next Thanksgiving. Um, it's a lot more indicative of our culture than Thanksgiving is, so we've got some work to do there. But So, dragon slaying. A paradigm for godly masculinity. And we're going to hit on all three spheres. Uh, we're going to hit on the sphere of the home, the church, and the culture. And we've been talking about those three spheres, right? In the home, in the church, and in the culture. Those are the predominant three spheres that God has placed us in to influence. So when I use the term dragon, by the way, my boys uh, brought some swords in this morning or tonight, and uh, <laughs> I told, I told, yeah, they're there. I told Jonah and Noah. I said, I said, guys, make sure you bring your swords to church tonight. And Jonah looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah, and uh, he says, my sword. I said, yeah, I'll go get your sword, and you can bring it tonight. And then he, you know, he tried to. Uh, pull a fast one, and, and he says, can I bring my shield too? And I said, no, just bring your sword. But um, anyhow, so uh, I thought it fit for the theme. So when I use the, the term dragon, I'm going to be using this inter interchangeably with the devil, interchangeably with the serpent. And so I want to jump off uh, with the family is the first kind of sphere here, and then we'll float around, and there's obviously a lot of overlap. So I, re I researched a little bit this week, and some of the headlines that I, I researched about birth rates here in the, in the United States and fam family planning, and uh, I'll just share a few, a few of these with you, the headlines. In The Guardian, this is back in April of this year, it says, quote, New research suggests people who are child-free by choice are happy with their decisions, while some parents are not. Here's another one. It says, kids, this is in quotes, kids just say no. You don't have to dislike children to see the harms done by having them. There is a moral case against procreation, end quote. That was... That was one headline. And then back in February of this year uh, from the BBC, it said, from, content, uh, excuse me, from consciously child-free influencers to online communities for people who've decided against having kids, the no kids movement is booming. And then of course, the number one reason that cited for not, you know, for, for this, railing against children and, and low birth rates should be no surprise to any of us. It's that, it's that there's no desire. There's, there's no desire to have kids anymore. And of course, the, the reason for us, there's no mystery because, you know, we're living in the most self-centered and selfish 
time in, in our country's existence. And of course, kids are, you know, they're a burden who has time for kids. And there's actually a, I didn't know this until this week, but anti-natalism is an actual thing, <laughs> anti-natalism. And some of the arguments that were posted on their site, life entails inevitable suffering. Humans are born without their consent. No one chooses whether or not to come into existence. So you have done an immoral thing by not asking if your child wanted to be born, apparently. Did you guys forget to do that? Uh, although some people may turn out to be happy, this is not guaranteed. So to procreate is to gamble with another person's suffering. And another argument it is wrong to create desires where no desires existed before. And then finally, it's wrong to add more complexity to the universe through the addition of even more moral consciousness. Right, because humans have a conscience. So we've got enough of that going on, so we don't need more of that. These are some of the, these, just, these are some of the absurdities that are coming at us. And I'm just reading these. So for all the absurdity, birth rates are at their lowest ever level in our history. The U.S. population's total fertility rate is now approximately 1.7 births per female, which is below the replacement rate of 2.1. So birth rates are down, uh, husbands are marginalized, fathers are either derelict or they're absent, uh, patriarchy is bashed, and so, you know, we're up against a lot here. There's a lot going on. So the godly, manly, dragon-slaying men are few and are far between. I mean, we do have plenty of dragon-slaying boys. It is still true that my boys' favorite pastime is to take their swords and their shields and to run around and they slay dragons and, and bad guys and you know all of this, it's their favorite thing to do. It's been that way since they were little, since I can remember. But it's how it should be, it's how it should be. But today, though we have plenty of dragon slaying boys, we have very few that grow up to be dragon slaying men, very few. So why, why did I rattle off those numbers on birth rates? Because there's a connection here that I want us to see. Uh, a nation's choice for no fathers, no marriage, and no children is a choice for perpetual adolescence. For it is in marriage, it is in marriage, it is in raising children that males grow into manhood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we Dedicate this time to you, Lord. Expand our minds. Help us, O oh Lord, to take seriously the need to raise up God-fearing men to be leaders, leaders in the home, leaders in the church, leaders in the culture that are willing to speak the truth, that are willing to lay down their lives. So we pray, Lord, that you would raise up even Diamond Hill Church and the few that are even here tonight, Lord, that... Uh, we might take these things seriously, to contemplate these things, to meditate upon your word and the truth that your word contains, that we may go out into this world and be catalysts, truth-tellers, risk-takers. And may we do these things by the power of your spirit. So we need your blessing, and we ask that tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So consider that the political left has bought into the philosophy of Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Most of you have heard the philosopher Rousseau, but what you may not know is that he believed that God's institutions of marriage, family, parenting, good citizenship, were all self-destructed to, to self-liberation. Rousseau viewed all those things as being hostile to personal authenticity, hostile to creativity, and hostile to being the real you. 
So he said that you have to find within you that noble savage who is not chained and weighted down by these institutions of society. So he called for freedom from society's institutions. He wanted to liberate society from these, these, these moral constructs, these social constructs. But, you know, of course, we would say, well, wait a minute. Those structures are God's institutions. And if you declare war on in those institutions, then you're going to have a crumbling society. You're going to eventually get anarchy. And so we have history that is replete with dictators throughout who've been leaders of bloodshedding societies that have bought into Rousseau's wicked romanticism. That a society could be created that is somehow freed from these institutions. Yet it's so clear from scripture and from history that it's exactly these institutions that produce a society with a conscience. A society that is civilized and a society that protects and values children and values family and proper social structures, proper distinctions. We've talked a lot about that. So to destroy these institutions is to destroy the very conscience of a society. And this leads me to my thesis tonight. And the thesis is that disciple-making in the home, disciple-making in the church, should be taught into men with this dragon slaying framework and should be an integral part of explaining and modeling biblical masculinity. So men, men need to be dragon slayers. That's how we need to think. We need to think in, in this term, in this paradigm. So consider for a moment, think about how God created men how God hardwired us, how God made us in our nature as men. And think cosmologically here. Why, here's some questions. Why is the theme of dragon slayer so prevalent in so many cultures, in human history? You know, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes danger and evil and wins the woman, you know, and marries her. Why is that theme so pervasive in human history? Why does it strike such a chord with us? Or another kind of associated question, why is the danger in slaying and conquering the dragon, why is that considered uh, valor? Why is that considered noble and not foolish to take that risk? So think about it this way. Why is the narrative of conquering evil, slaying the dragon, winning the woman, why does this fill history, art, poetry, drama? Why is this the most popular theme in film. That there is this villain and that there is this hero and that we have this hero who's willing to take risk and risk his own life, his own body, sacrifice himself and deliver a person or a people from the villain. We never ever get tired of this theme. So let's open up the reason why. Well, we would say that in the realm of human beings and even in the realm of the church, there are consequences when males drift from the redemptive dragon-slaying narrative and they succumb to a matriarchal-led relationship. And as we've touched on in previous sessions, you know, Christ is our prototypical masculine man, right? Christ is the ultimate dragon slayer who slays the dragon. He frees his bride. He conquers evil. And he establishes his kingdom of righteousness. The word of God frames this dragon slaying narrative so beautifully. Listen to this. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, right, the incarnation. So that through his death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed, he triumphed over them by him. Or 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see, 
This is the reason even natural men are drawn to the redemptive story. Because we are made to behold glory. We were made to behold the one who slays our enemies, frees us from the dominion of sin, from Satan and his lies. Our affections were made to turn upon this glorious perfect king who destroys the power of evil and establishes his righteous kingdom forever. So, saints, we were made to behold this glory. We were made to behold reality. We were made to be enthusiastic spectators of this glory. It's innate. It's inside of us. But not only this, but God-fearing men were made by Christ not only to witness this, but to live in this paradigm. So this is not mere conjecture. This isn't some poetic piece of fantasy fiction. In fact, the prediction of this theme is captured in the very third chapter of Genesis. For we are told that though the seed of the woman would receive a mortal wound, he would serve the ultimate death blow to the serpent, right? So praise the Lord that this is the gospel right there in the very beginning in Genesis 3.15. But this promise is also a rebuke of sorts. It's also a reminder. And it's a reminder in that we know how Adam failed. We know that he failed by allowing his wife to set the pattern. And rather than protecting his wife from the dragon, he allows his wife to be duped by him. And then by his failure, failure, he freezes humanity into a state of rebellion by eating the forbidden fruit and, by, and thus therefore subjecting the entire human race under the rule of the dragon. And so here we are today, right? And it's easy for us to see. We look around and we see that the whole world is controlled by the dragon. So by virtue of our union with the ultimate dragon slayer, Christ our Lord, we can say with full confidence that the redemptive model and pattern which Christ has provided for us, you know, this, this pattern of conquering evil, gathering his bride, is a model for believing men today. It's a witnessing model as well. For Christian men, as we've looked at they're commanded in Ephesians 5, right? We talked about that, to be imitators of Christ. They're to be types of Christ. That is, in Christ's sacrificial love and their sacrificial love, they're willing to lay down their life in order to win the woman and love her until death. And Christ conquered the enemies of his bride in order to make her his. And in many ways, the husband is doing the same thing. He's conquering his wife's enemies of errors, and lies and sin. He's conquering his family's enemies of lies and sin. So I think we've mentioned this before, but it's worth mentioning again. In Hosea 2.14, it starts, he says, consider some of the scripture's marital language here in describing God's love for his bride, Israel. He says, therefore, behold, I will allure her and speak to her heart and she will sing. There is in the days of her youth. So I will remove the names of the bales from her mouth. In that day I will cut a covenant. And I will make them lie down in security. And I will betroth you to me forever. Indeed, I will betroth you to me in righteousness, in justice, in loving kindness, and in compassion. And I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. So as a type of Christ, it is this redemptive pattern that the sanctified man follows. It's so persuasive to the woman. It is adorning to her, to the sanctified woman who is a type of church. But this redemptive pattern is a stench in the nostrils of Satan. It's a stench in the nostrils of our culture that is unwittingly controlled by the dragon. 
So consider what ghastly lengths the left has gone to to remove this redemptive portrait in the culture. Let's just consider this for a moment. Listen to this by Dr. Peter Jones. He says, quote, by granting to homosexuality statutory status and by recognizing same-sex marriage as a civil right, the U.S. Supreme Court paganized the profound mystery of the Christian gospel expressed in male and female marriage, which reveals God's propitiatory love for his people. Two men copulating cannot represent God's love for his people since throughout history this was the pagan image of the divine and human relationship, end quote. But the left did not stop there with homosexual marriage. Today, sexuality has become a watershed theme in the enmity between biblical and pagan morality. And as we've stated in past sessions with the LGBTQ agenda and all that, so church, uh, I don't like bringing these things up, but it's necessary that we talk about them. Um, public library drag story time. You, you've, heard of, you've heard of this. It's where fathers and mothers, they take their children to the library and they subject them to heinous perversions and men that are scantily dressed as women in parading themselves in front of little children. And though this story time is promoted as harmless fun, it's promoted as just progressive education. The vast majority of Christians have no clue what deadly concoction is brewing underneath the surface. There is a very specific and very sinister agenda. And you may want to bring your paper bag out from underneath your seat for this one. Uh, listen carefully to what's being said here. This is from Truth Exchange Ministries. Quote, consider that recently two spokesmen for drag pedagogy, which is the, the science of teaching, openly discussed drag queen reading, readings for children. Within the historical context of the USA and Western Europe, the institutional management of gender has been used as a way of maintaining racist and capitalist modes of reproduction. To disrupt this dynamic, the authors propose drag pedagogy as a way of stimulating the queer imagination, teaching children how to live queerly and bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children. The goal is to expose childhood innocence as an oppressive hetero-patriarchal illusion, to make queer thinking the future moral order of society. Their task, they say, is to disrupt the binary between womanhood and manhood, seed the room with gender transgressive themes, and break the reproductive futurity of the nuclear family and the sexually monogamous marriage, all of which are considered mechanisms of heterosexual capitalist oppression. There's organizations that have created, they're very, very well funded and they go around the country and they, they look for places to host these events. There is a specific agenda and it is to destroy patriarchy. We have to understand that. It is to destroy male headship. It is to destroy the family, to destroy and reduce to rubble all of these social structures that God has put in place. So consider what we're up against today. The speed of this mobilization of gender anarchy has caught so many of us completely flat-footed. 
This inversion of morality is exhaustive, it's relentless, and its infiltration is unified. It is consolidated, and thanks to modern technological advancements, it's now synthesized. The dragon has been enlisting his army for decades, and now, now he is in full attack mode. But he's not marching through the field like a redcoat soldier. Right? The devil's strategy has always been the same. He has a twin-forked approach of deception and sin. Aimed at who? The most vulnerable. Women and children. Women and children. How does he accomplish his advancement? By removing the head. By removing the protector. By removing the guardians of society. Hit the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. His arsenal is aimed at patriarchy. It's armed directly at dragon slayers. And so we must see this. And what is his goal? What is his goal? His goal is to silence them. To silence them. He does this a number of ways. He paints a distorted picture of them. He, you know, scatters them in various ways to get them out of the house, to render them impotent through idolatry, various other measures. doesn't matter to him. So this pattern of Christ conquering the dragon is closely related to what we would call federal theology. And when I say federal theology, I'm describing the fact that in Romans 5, it says that the whole human race is represented by one of two Adams. There are only two races. You're either represented by the first Adam's failure or you're represented by the second Adam's success. And these two atoms in federal, what we call federal theology, brought about two different reigns. The reign and th or throne, we could say, of sin and death, or the reign of grace and life. So those who are represented by the second Adam, the last Adam, have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, it says in Colossians 1. So when a man is saved, it ought to implant into him, this is the point, it ought to implant into him an, an, uh, an intimacy with Christ so as that Christ, who is the prototypical initiator, he is the defender, he is the protector, divider, the conqueror, the slayer of evil, the loving head of his bride, he's the winner of his bride, it ought to plant in that man these same virtuous characteristics. So therefore, in imitating our Lord, the risk or the danger that we face is never foolish, but it's always ultimately worth it. But instead, what do we see in our culture today? Instead of the dragon-slaying narrative, our culture seems to be moving further and further away from the redemptive narrative. We see non-redemptive relationships we see passive males who are responders, not protectors, not diligently slaying evil, but they're pleasers, man-pleasers. They're averse to risk. They tend to be silent compromisers. They tend to be nervous confronters. What, what is a nervous confronter? It's somebody who doesn't confront, and so what happens when they do? They don't know how to. They've never been taught how to. They've never, they've never been in a position where they have to talk to somebody and confront them. So they're timid. They're fearful. They're fearful of persecution. They become territorial. And ultimately producing the passivity of the first Adam's behavior. But we need to be very clear here. Adam was a traitor. He was a coward. He was a man who collaborated with the enemy by betraying the cause of righteousness out of cowardice. When the threat of sin and the threat of death came, Adam was silent. He was mute. He was a quizzler. So let's think here together. Let's get to the, to the bottom of this. Though we live in the freest society, which boasts of the highest standard of living in the world, ironically, 
we have a new generation rising up that does not cherish freedom. And through their lusts and through sin, they are forging chains for themselves. They're forging their own chains. And we used, we, we used to talk about the silent majority. Remember that? Those were the ones that didn't say much, but they showed up at the voting booth. The rock the vote people. Well, look where quiet opposition has gotten us. The silent majority has become the silent minority, and now the silent minority is wasting away, dying a slow death because they were unwilling to embrace the redemptive dragon-slaying narrative. They were refused to live in that paradigm. So let's describe one of those chains that's being forged. Illicit sexuality and sensuality. So to use the dragon-slaying analogy from the scripture, I think of mighty men such as Othniel, the nephew of Caleb, who by the power of the Spirit won the battle to win his bride, right? And was given a land as an inheritance. In a conquest, or this conquest of evil, he received a hero's reward. He got to marry the beautiful woman. So we could say that one of the fruits of dragon slaying is marital intimacy. But in an age of self expressed in unrestrained sex and promiscuity and pornography, we have young males who want the benefits of marital intimacy without the sacrifice of being a dragon slayer. They want the prize without the hard work of slaying sin in their own lives first and without the battles of obedience within the hard work of wrestling with God, putting death to their own impurities and their own evil passions. So listen to this. This is from Proven Men Ministries way back in 2014, almost 10 years ago. Conducted by the Barna Group, the statistics for Christian men between 18 and 30 years old are particularly striking. 77% this is Christian men, look at pornography at least monthly. Ages 31 to 49 are no less disturbing. Disturbing. 77% looked at pornography while at work with regularity. So, (laughs) pornography is an ongoing enslaving lie And this enslaving lie is a repetitive tutorial in selfishness, in spinelessness. For it says that I want the blessing without the hard work of winning. It is the rotten soul of cowardice. It ruins a man's testimony in his own conscience. It isn't a wonder why we have so many men that are silent in the church. If their hypocrisy speaks to their conscience, it won't let them speak up. You see? A defiled conscience will keep a man silent. It isn't a wonder why birth rates have plummeted. I mean, who wants the burden of children and marriage when you can have it all without the responsibility? This is what the culture is being sold. Another self-forged chain is the man's proneness to flee before and during a conflict. To avoid conflict, to avoid dealing with problems head on. This passivity is rarely isolated. Usually you'll find it in all three spheres. You'll find it in the family, in the church, and in civil interaction. Why? Because it's a character issue. And you are with you all the time, right? My my wife and I were recently talking about what shame and disgrace those police officers had endured um, in the eyes of the public, you know, for not going into that Texas school. And those children, you know, were being gunned down while they just sort of stood out in the parking lot. And those examples, they turn our stomachs. But for all the dash and courage to risk one's life, the far more common example ought to be found daily in the home. It ought to be found daily in the church, daily in the workplace, 
So we, we live in a world of conflict that's all around us. And there's going to be conflict. Dragon slayers are peacemakers. And contrary to popular sentiment, peacemakers don't hide from their responsibilities. They don't cower in times of conflict. They meet problems head on. I mean, thank, thankful we're thankful for our Lord, right? Who met our problems head on. He didn't cower at the devil's threats and he didn't abandon his mission. He met his enemies head on in that cross. He met his disciples head on when they were in error. I mean, what did he tell Peter? Get behind me, Satan. Right? James and John, the sons of thunder, wanted to call down fire from heaven and Jesus rebuked them for their mercilessness. So we, we rebuke sin with those that we love. We don't hide from, from them, and we don't give them the silent treatment, and we don't pretend that they don't exist. We deal with it in love, like Christ did. So now fleeing conflict, it takes many forms. Uh, I was thinking about in my former commute uh, down a long street that leads to a wealthy peninsula, not far from here, on Lake Norman, and I've seen recently a number of large buildings erected and sold, and they've been advertised as man caves. These massive garages with apartments, they provide easy street refuge for irresolute, self-indulged, weak men located just a few miles from their waterfront lots that restrict you know, these kinds of things. And so they build these huge garages, and they fill those garages with their toys, with boats and classic cars and motorcycles and whatever else they can stuff in there. So these man caves for the affluent come complete with apartments for boys' poker nights. And uh, listen, I mean, no doubt they also double as uh, convenient locations for marital infidelity, right? So these bulging vats are nothing but shameful landmarks of the removal of the redemptive paradigm. It is a retreat for the coward. Without faithful husbands and fathers, we are left without consequences. We are left with a lawless society, and we are left without hope. So the willing giving up of the very structures of family and church are sold to us as self-defined liberation. But the scripture says that living for self leads to death. I mean, listen, even for the saved man, we, we battle with these things, don't we? We struggle with our lower nature. It continues to rear its ugly head. We have to continue to uh, yield our swords, as it were, right? In crucifying the flesh. But the new man has a new identity. And his new identity is the ultimate dragon slayer. So, I mean, if we think about it in that terms, it's, it's, it's fascinating that our own sanctification can't really make progress if we dismiss this dragon slaying narrative. For it is the paradigm by which we yield control to the spirit of Christ. He, he, he laid aside his rights. Right? He emptied himself. He didn't see himself as being one as co-equal with the Father in terms of honor. But instead, he was willing to experience incredible humiliation, incredible shame. And so the man not living in this paradigm is not willing to be humiliated. So I would ask the men that are here, are, are you willing to be humiliated? Are you willing to endure incredible shame? So we need men that are willing to take the necessary gut punches, that are willing to stand front and center and take the abuse. But think of it this way, living in this paradigm is not coming to us like some kind of bad Wi-Fi connection. Instead, the masculine mandate is hardwired to the work of Christ. Abiding in Christ means that we are hardwired to Christ's conquering of sin, 
and evil over his enemies, and we are hardwired to him laying down his life in order to win those whom God has providentially put in his sphere of influence. So Christ, his work, his slaying of the dragon is a paradigm for godly manhood. And we think of the Lord's Prayer, the part of the Lord's Prayer that says, deliver us from evil, and that will be with us. That part of the Lord's Prayer will be with us until Christ's return, right? Because evil is a present phenomenon at all times until the Lord comes back. And evil is at war with freedom until our Lord returns. So from, you know, the smallest expression of this, such as a schoolyard bully uh, to a violent criminal, to drug cartels, to totalitarian regimes, even sin in the church and in our families and our children, we have to oppose evil. We have to fight it. And we have to risk our lives in order to protect the freedom that God has won for us. We have to be ever diligent for that to take place, to continue fighting for that freedom. So now, back to giving this sort of a cultural context, the perverted agenda of the progressive left is intent on corrupting our children. Uh, they're, they're intent on killing the unborn, crushing free speech, promoting sexual perversion. And over the last several decades, the progressive left has been able to pass these ideas or their ideas in redemptive language. And in doing so, what they're saying is that their ideology is the one that needs to be set free from the things that would oppose equity, inclusion, unity, non-discrimination, safety, and that those that don't accept their lifestyle and affirm it and even promote it, well, they are enemies of freedom and enemies of unity. They're enemies of equity, safety, inclusion, all these things. They employ a dragon-slaying language which touches the very core of our being. But in doing so, they have deceptively twisted the character and law of God. They're speaking as if their sinful lifestyle makes them automatic victims of evil. And here's the thing, they need a deliverer. They need a savior. They need a redeemer to fit their narrative, to complete their narrative. So they tend to seek out political leaders. They seek out persons in authority. They seek out people that are posing as the righteous ones. And they, what they've done is they successfully have flipped the script calling good evil and evil good. So consider that throughout church history, the church hasn't been persecuted for doing what was right and virtuous. They weren't persecuted for building hospitals. They weren't persecuted for building churches. They weren't persecuted for giving to the poor. They were persecuted and they were martyred because they were framed as being enemies of humanity. Now, that can only happen if morality is flipped and human rights move from being endowed by the creator to being enshrined by wicked men. And that's what we're seeing today. We are not far. We're not far away. So, have you ever noticed that, whether it's in a restaurant or a coffee shop, that conversations quickly become a, discuss, a discussion of what is just and unjust? And these conversations tend to revolve around what a particular group is entitled to receive, what group doesn't have something, right? And how that entitlement is being defrauded, how the so-called freedoms are being withheld from people freedom to engage in perversion and all these other things. But what does it say in John 8.32? I know some of you may have memorized this. In John 8.32 it says, And you will know the truth, and what? The truth will set you free. But think of the context for that verse. It's the very verse before that. And it says that abiding in Christ's word is how we are set free. Abiding in his word and abiding is a very rich word. Um, it has many, a lot of connected meanings. It means to remain. It means to stay in. It implies deep intimacy. It implies union. 
So who is the person that is being set free? It is the person who is abiding in the word of God and paying close attention to obey it. It is obedience to the word of God that brings freedom. Equality, equity, diversity, apart from obedience to Christ, is slavery and death. So we could say that this truth that sets you free is not only knowing that knowing God is freedom, but also knowing sin is slavery. But here's the thing. Christ, you know, he exposes the dragon's great lie that sin is freedom and that sin can come with no consequence. And of course, this was first cast as a path to liberty in the Garden of Eden. But to stay in that lie of the devil means that you are the devil's chump. You're the devil's stooge. You're his mullet. And if you don't repent, you are headed for a fiery hell. For sin slavery ends in cosmic public mockery, public shame, and damnation. So think about the Apostle Paul. And in Galatians 5.13, Paul tells the Galatians, he says, to stay, essentially stay free from re-enslavement to the flesh. Do not allow this newfound freedom to provide an opportunity for the flesh, but instead submit to Christ. So the Christian is required to diligently guard his freedom, guard his heart, guard his freedom. For the truth that sin is slavery is, the, is so very basic, but it is also so very deceptive. Sin is slavery. And we see that concept in the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and that immediately what happens? They lose their freedom. Yet in our world, in the academy and in corporations that are propagating this, all this stuff, the multitudes have embraced the lie with a full-on hug and kiss, right? They've embraced the lie that sin is freedom. So we have some very fundamental work to do in preaching the truth to our culture. How are we doing on time? Doing okay? So, of course, that includes telling the culture how sin is defined. We need to tell the, the, the culture how sin is defined. Sin is identified by the law of God in the Ten Commandments, in his Decalogue, Right? For God's moral law is God's own character in code. And the reason that this is a moral universe is because its creator, its gardener, its tender is perfectly holy. Therefore, God's character is the very furniture of the universe. Now, the serpent comes in with a lie and he, reshape, he, you know, he reshapes the lie. He, he modernizes things for the for the new, the new hip culture. And what does he say? He just words things a little differently. He says that the devil essentially says that freedom, that sin is freedom, and the reason that sin is freedom is because sin is the real you. Sin is the real you. Sin puts you on the devil's team as a revolutionary who is fighting against these confining cords of Yahweh. These ancient restraints of laws and fixed moral codes are outdated, we're told. They're archaic, and we need to deconstruct how we view the family. We need to deconstruct how we do church. We need to deconstruct doctrine. We need to deconstruct theology, the culture. We need to reexamine everything. Burn the books, right? Burn the history books. So we're being told that to dip back into this ancient morality is just is foolishness, it's immoral, it's confining, it's slavery. That's what we're being told. What was an invitation to slip back into slavery during the sexual revolution is now a full-fledged mission to willingly go into full slavery, full confinement. We're told not to be on the wrong side of history. Who is the greatest enemy of our culture, according to the university? 
According to the university, according to our culture, it's the Bible-believing Christian. They're the greatest enemy. Because they're the greatest enemy because they want to dip back into these archaic, ancient laws of which our society in this newfound wisdom has outgrown. So, a huge question that applies to all people that say they believe the gospel is this. How shall we find the grit? How shall we find the motivation? How shall we find the stick to to fight sin every day, every hour, in all three spheres to expose the lie that sin is freedom? How do we do it? How can we harness the strength to, to do that, to put sin to death? Well, it comes from knowing the truth and letting that truth set you free and letting that truth keep you free. So uh, C.S. Lewis, it is interesting that when he wrote the book, uh, The Abolition of Man, he was basically saying that virtue is very, very hard work. (laughs) It's very hard work. But nothing is easier than succumbing to animal passions. Nothing's easier than, than going back into these fleshly impulses. We would add that any society that's lost its conscience and its will to stay free, morally speaking, and that certainly you know, describes us here in the West, any society that's lost its will to stay morally free is most easily conquered by a more disciplined society. I know anybody in the, knows anything or experienced the military can understand that. It's the most disciplined society that ends up ruling. So I heard earlier this week that other countries now are sending missionaries into America. What a warning that this should be to the West, right? We don't have the, the high moral ground. It's been relinquished. I've often asked my own children if they've ever thought about how difficult it is to build a house or to build a building, to be, to be a builder, how, how difficult it is, but how easy it is to destroy something. I mean, any, anybody can destroy something, but not any, and not everyone can build. For to build, it takes time, it takes planning, it takes patience, good engineering, and hard work. So moral virtue is very hard work, but animal passion, it's very easy to slip back into. We just slide right into it the moment we release a sense of self-denial, the moment we release a sense of self-control. So when the culture embraces a worldview of this philosophic naturalism and attributes everything to the creation and not to God, the net effect, religiously speaking, is an amputated soul. A humanity without a soul is but a group of animals with no real reason to mortify or put to death sinful flesh. And this makes it philosophically easy to roll right into animal passions and then label those impulses as authenticity to personal freedom. I mean, how absurd. We, we teach people that they're just a product of evolutionary chance. We teach children these things, and then they go blow up a school, and then we're just shocked. Well, they're actually more consistent than anybody else that believes those things. They're only doing what they've, told, what they've been told. They're only acting these things out. So when a culture embraces this, the, the, the soul of that, that culture is lost. And uh, this is what woke ideology is all about. So justifying, even codifying, even if informally, you can have informal codification, right, is the net result of what happens when the society turns to act out in its animal passions. So we were talking earlier about how the only thing that's holding back some of these things like 
bestiality and incest and all of these other wicked perversions. The only thing that's holding him back is taboo. <laughs> that's, that's it. But once a people become more consistent, then the majority of the people become more consistent, then they're, they're going to start asking these questions. Why isn't prostitution legal? Why is incest a problem? Why is polygamy an issue? That's a very scary thing. So, and they're already talking about these things. So we, we need men to grow up into this dragon-slaying redemptive narrative. We need men to operate within this narrative. Sin as freedom is the mantra of the world, and the world is consolidating around that mantra. It's not just here in the West. Uh, this verse uh, leaped out at me this week. In Revelation 17, 17, this is an extremely telling, but perhaps overlooked uh, text. It says this, quote, For God has put into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. That's Revelation 17, 17 through 18. I mean, until recently, it would have been unheard of for nations to voluntarily give up their own sovereignty. But that is exactly what is happening. It is happening all over the West. They're just giving it up. The United States is giving it up as well as other sovereign nations. And they're doing it by relinquishing their power, literally handing over the keys of their nation to sin. Consider that LGBTQ rights are being enshrined as human rights and it's happening all over the globe. Australia, South Central America, Europe. Human rights are being redefined as the right to sin. Sin is freedom. That's the lie that is rounding up the nations of the world under the guise of true liberty. So if it, if it looks right, if it feels right, and propels the real me forward, then it must be good and it must be codified. So this is the illusion that freedom is true freedom through sin, but it's not. It's actual self-imprisonment. I used to do, as I mentioned, uh, chaplaincy work at the prisons, and, you know, I would, I would teach pr prisoners just like I'm doing here, and I would give the Word of God and give them Bible studies and teach them how to put these things into practice, and, you know, it was just astonishing to me over, over and over again what would happen. You'd, you hammer these things into these guys, and then they leave, and then guess what? They just come right back. They come right back. Not knowing how to manage their freedom, they ended up not protecting that freedom and back into jail they would go. So self-imprisonment became the consequence of the failure to guard and cherish freedom. So the dragon is enlisting new generations to further enhance the lie that sin is freedom. And with the next crop of youth arising, these youth will ask what every youth has asked in every generation if they've not been properly discipled, and that is this, how can I shock my parents? How, how will I become my own person not like them? How can I be free from the cords of my Christian parents? How can I be free from the bounds of their religion? And they end up using their freedom to revolt from the very ones that granted it. I mean, just think about young people. When they get together, they're left. I know this is true of my blessed boys, you know, when they're left alone for too long together. They make foolish decisions. And... Uh, you know, oftentimes these, these boys, a little older, but they get together and they, 
they call these foolish decisions, you know, freedom. They call them daring. When actually, when they make these impulsive decisions, which are very easy to make, they have a very long-term consequence. In those moments of peer pressure and temptation, the easy thing to do is to give in to the animal impulses. And, and when you do that, they're cheered on by their friends, right? But this shows a very deep ignorance of the words of Christ and the words of Christ that say that sin is slavery. In reality, those moments of temptation, the far more difficult path to choose is virtue. But choosing the easy path in the long run results in making decisions that eventually you will have to serve. But to choose the difficult pass of those decisions actually means that your decisions end up serving you. You see, if we disciple our children, if we're slaying our environments, if we're working within these fears as God has commanded us to do, then we were actually teaching a society that self-restraint, self-discipline means that your virtues actually will end up serving you in the long run. But to compromise virtue and you will end up having to serve your decisions. So, you, know, you think about all the Proverbs that are oriented to the young man and his tendency for impulsiveness, and it leads to great irreversible sins of his youth that he can't reverse, he can't get back. And if he doesn't exercise restraint, those impetuous decisions will quickly morph, they'll quickly mold, and ultimately, they will define his character. Um, we'll, we'll close here in a few moments, but just as kind of a, a warning, I guess. And there's, there's three kind of categorical seasons of a man's life, and uh, that they have unique areas of temptation. In the teens, in the 20s, it's a sexual impulse. In the 30s, in the 40s, it is the temptation to build wealth, to conquer, to rule, to spread out, right? To make a name for yourself. And then in the 50s and 60s and beyond, the temptation is to relax. The temptation is to retire in comfort, in ease, and enjoy one's temporal prosperity, right? You've earned it. Now, there's overlap here, I recognize. Right, and in in, in 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 there are ways for for us to enjoy those things from God as well, properly, in due order, right? But they're not excuses to remove ourselves from the dragon slaying, redemptive pattern. And by giving over to these temptations, it will lead to self imprisonment. And in, you know, Proverbs 14, 12, right? There is, a right? there is a way that seems right unto man, but in the end it leads to death. In Job 36, 11, there's an interesting verse here. It says, if they hear and serve him, God, they will end their days in prosperity and their years in pleasures. But if they do not hear, they shall pass away by a weapon, and they will breathe their last without knowledge. So my encouragement here um, for you more seasoned men is to end well, end well, end as a dragon slayer. Teach your children, your grandchildren, pour into them uh, the teach them that the that that pervasive lie that is just everywhere that sin actually leads to freedom grab somebody grab a younger man help him come alongside them that's my appeal to you and for those that are younger that are still in child rearing age you know instill these things be willing to set yourself aside, be willing to sacrifice your time, your talents, your energies, your everything that God has given you, no matter what it may be, to sacrifice it, set it aside and build something that's lasting, build something that's eternal. And for 
any of you young people that are out there, listen to wise men. Listen to older wise men. Read the word of God with diligence. Read it until you understand it and read it some more until you know that you have been purchased by the blood of Christ and that you are his and that you are owned by him. So, now, we don't do these things on our own. We are, con- we are continuously to be animated by the glory of the risen Christ. We are to be continuously drawn into this redemptive story because our tendency is to, is to flee. Our tendency is to, is to waver. So let us cling to Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for our time. Thank you for your word and thank you for your grace, which we need each day. We cannot do these things on our own. We need your power. We need your wisdom. We need your strength. We need to be united in you, not just in position, but in practice. Correct us, discipline us, Bring us to repentance in areas that we need to repent. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Strengthen us in our health that we may have prolonged this tent so that we can glorify you all the more with all of our faculties, Lord. And may you get all the glory. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.